Hello, and welcome to Teacher in Zion podcast, a podcast for Christians, Mormons, ex-Mormons, and other Book of Mormon believers, or anyone questioning their faith or the church, with an emphasis on seeking the truth wherever it leads, but especially in gaining a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Doug Hatton, and this is episode 21 of the podcast entitled, What's in a Name? Before we start this episode, I need to take a moment to make a correction regarding episode 19, Let's Talk About Zion. In that episode, I mentioned a vision of the Kansas City area in the best-selling book, Embraced by the Light. I read that book, as well as the other one I mentioned, back in the 1990s. That's a long time ago. But what was written in that vision has stayed with me all these years. And I would have sworn that I had read the account I shared with you in Embrace by the Light. I had ordered this book so that I could reread it. And I received it the day after publishing that episode of the podcast. It took me just two days to read it, even though I'm a slow reader. It is that good. But the vision of the center of the U.S. being protected was not in it. So, unless they left that out in some later edition of this book, I must have read that in a different book. So, now it's going to bother me endlessly until I discover where I read that. I apologize for the mistake. There are several more testimonies I could share in its place, but maybe we can do that in a future episode of the podcast. Regardless, I do want to encourage you to read Embraced by the Light by Betty J. Eady. That's E-A-D-I-E. I really can't recommend it highly enough. It is a compelling page-turner, and many of the truths within it were confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's get into today's episode. William Shakespeare once wrote, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. Many believe the name of Jesus to be a sweet sound indeed and many songs have been written about the name of Jesus. But what power is there in a name? And is Jesus even his real name? And what would it mean if it wasn't, especially in light of Acts 4.12, which states that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved? These and other questions will be covered in today's episode, So fasten your seatbelts and check your pockets to make sure you don't have any stones to throw my way. And let's get started. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, he told her to name the child Yeshua. Yeshua is the same word as Joshua found in our English Bibles. There is no J in Hebrew, so Joshua is properly pronounced Yeshua. So where did we get the name Jesus Jesus is a classical Latin name, being a shortened form of the ancient Greek version of the Hebrew and Aramaic name Yeshua. Is it not interesting, though, and I would argue intentionally symbolic, that Christ would be given the name of the biblical hero Joshua? Remember that it was Joshua who led the Israelites into the Promised Land and also into victory over their enemies. But the symbolic meaning doesn't end here. In Jewish eschatology, there are at least two messiahs that were prophesied in the pages of the Bible. One of them being Messiah ben Joseph, which means Messiah son of Joseph. 
and the other is Messiah ben David, or Messiah son of David. Messiah ben Joseph, it's described in Zechariah 9 when it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice that this coming king is described as being humble. In fact, even riding on a donkey. Not exactly the animal one would ride into battle to overcome their enemies. Messiah ben Joseph has also been referred to as the suffering servant. And the passages in Isaiah 53 which say, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of his peace was upon us, and by his stripes we are healed, can be attributed to this Messiah ben Joseph. I think it is safe to say that the Jews obviously did not know what to make of this particular Messiah, and he certainly wasn't the one they were looking for when Jesus came. On the other hand, Messiah ben David, known as the conquering king, he is the one prophesied to destroy Israel's enemies and to reign over the earth in righteousness. Not fully understanding how these things should be fulfilled, the Jews, I think, assumed that these were two different people rather than one person who would come at two different times. And because of Roman oppression, the Jews weren't particularly interested in the suffering servant, but rather in the conquering king. When Jesus came and people began to suspect that he was the Messiah, the people assumed that he would lead them to overthrow the Romans and restore their earthly kingdom. And this was the cause of much confusion on the part of many, including his disciples. Jesus had not come to fulfill his role as Messiah, son of David. Instead, he was there to fulfill his role as Messiah, son of Joseph. And here we have a mystery that we don't have time to fully flesh out today, but I do believe this role is not merely symbolic. When Jesus came as the suffering servant, he performed a service to mankind, much like Joseph did for Israel, by suffering even at the hands of his own family. But the end result of that suffering would be that through the injustice done to Joseph, he would become the instrument of their temporal salvation. In a time of famine, Joseph, who had then been raised up by Pharaoh, was able to gather his family into a place of refuge during the seven-year famine. Even as Christ is that shepherd that will gather his sheep into one fold, even all the tribes of Israel, and he will gather them into a place of refuge during the times of tribulation. The angel told Mary and Joseph that they were to name the child Yeshua, Joshua in English. And Joshua from the Old Testament made it possible for the Israelites to enter the promised land and overcome their enemies. But not only that, but Joshua was also the one who allotted the inheritance of each tribe. And consider this, Joshua was also an Ephraimite, meaning he was of the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was the son of Joseph. And I believe we can make a case, when all of the evidence is considered, that Christ was actually descended from Joseph, as well as from David. 
This isn't something generally known or even considered in the world, nor even by the church. And I believe this is because it is a hidden mystery that Jesus was a Jew of the tribe of Judah. We all know. And we know this because of the record of the Jews, which is the Bible. But there is a mystery here, one hidden from the world. According to Micah chapter 5, the prophesied place of Jesus' birth is Bethlehem Ephrathah. But when Matthew in the New Testament refers to this prophecy, he conveniently left out the word Ephrathah. Why? I believe it is because he was a Jew of the tribe of Judah, and as such he still held certain biases against Ephraim. The people who first dwelled in Bethlehem Ephrathah were referred to as Ephrathites. If you look up that word and follow it back far enough to its root, it can denote people of the tribe of Ephraim. Caleb's wife was named Ephrathah, and she may have been so named after her tribe. Ephrathah means fruitful, and the name Ephraim also means fruitful. And this is because both of these words are really the same word, just a variation. I have come to believe from my research, and also by way of revelation, that the ancient inhabitants of Bethlehem, or Ephrathah, were a mixture of Ephraimites and Jews. Christ was descended from Boaz and Ruth, and there is also evidence that although Boaz was counted as part of the tribe of Judah, that he also had near relatives, or in other words, blood relatives, and also ancestors with Ephraimite heritage. That many people who hailed from that part of the country were a mixture of these two tribes through marriages and children. I have come to refer to this mystery as the hidden lineage of Jesus. Remember that Christ is not only Messiah, son of David, but he is also Messiah, son of Joseph, the suffering servant. This is something that the Jews really just weren't prepared to look at yet. They had a strong dislike for Ephraim historically, which is revealed in their disgust for Samaritans, also depicted in the New Testament. The Samaritans were, after all, a remnant of Ephraimites, and Jesus' own disciples wanted to call down fire upon them, like Elijah of old. But instead, Jesus gave them the parable of the Good Samaritan, as Gentiles, I don't think we can really appreciate what a slap in the face it was to depict a Samaritan as being more righteous than a priest and a Levite. I can only imagine this parable was a very hard pill for his disciples to swallow. Ephraim and Judah are the two ruling tribes in Israel, beginning with Joseph and then Moses and then Joshua. Ephraim was the ruling tribe of Israel for 400 years, and the tabernacle of the Lord and the Ark of the Covenant rested in Ephraim's land of Shiloh. This is a part of the history of Israel that most people are not aware of and is almost never preached or taught in Bible classes. It was not until sin entered into that household that the Ark of the Covenant was lost, and David was eventually able to recover it and bring it to Jerusalem where a temple was then built by his son among the Jews. And then just a short time later, during the time of Solomon's son, because of the sin of the house of David, 
the Lord then tore away ten tribes from the house of David, and he gave them to an Ephraimite king, thereby forming the northern kingdom of Israel, and leaving two tribes with the southern kingdom of Judah. Needless to say, if you study it out in the scriptures, there was a great enmity between these two tribes, Judah and Ephraim. But Isaiah 11.13 prophesies that a day will come under Christ when Ephraim will no longer envy Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim, but they shall come together in peace. Now hold that thought for just a moment, and let us go back to the prophecy regarding the birth of Christ. Micah says that Christ would be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem means bread, which also represents the house of David, and Ephrathah means fruitful, which is also a reference to wine, or the fruit of the vine, which is also scripturally and prophetically symbolic of Ephraim. Brothers and sisters, we have in Bethlehem Ephrathah the birthplace of Christ, both the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ, which is the reconciliation not only of these two ruling tribes, but even the reconciliation of the whole world. Okay, enough of this for now. In Christ, we have both of these messiahs, both the son of Joseph, the one who would suffer for us so that we could be saved, and also the son of David, who will conquer our enemies and establish peace and reign in righteousness on the earth for a thousand years. The name that was given to Christ is Yeshua, or Joshua, who was an Ephraimite that led the way for the Israelites to come into the promised land of their physical inheritance, even as Christ does for us spiritually through salvation. But I would argue also physically by bringing about Zion and because of the resurrection. And because the name that was given to him was Yeshua, technically speaking, someone could make the case that the only name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved is Yeshua, not Jesus. And that is precisely what I read in a pamphlet many years ago published by a Messianic Jewish group. They made the case that since Christians were believing in the name of Jesus, not Yeshua, that they were bound for hell if they didn't repent. I could see their point, technically speaking, but immediately it smacked of the kind of legalism that made the Pharisees and scribes an enemy of God. I would also point out that although Jesus clearly states in the Bible that only those who believe on him and are baptized can be saved, we also read that he told the repentant thief on the cross that he would be with him in paradise that day. He did not tell the thief, I'm sorry. I would have granted you salvation, but since you can't get baptized, you're out of luck. And this also reminds me of when Joseph Smith reported having a vision of the celestial kingdom where he saw his brother Alvin in the vision, and he was surprised at his presence since he had died before getting the chance to hear the fullness of the gospel and be properly baptized, etc. The Lord answered Joseph's inquiry, saying, that had his brother lived, he would have accepted the gospel message. And if this is true, I think we can surmise that each person will have an opportunity to accept the message of Christ, whether in this world or in the next. 
We need to understand what the scripture tells us about the nature of God and believe it, that he is love, that he is just, and that he is merciful. We need to trust in the word when it tells us that God is both just and merciful. What God could either be just or merciful who would let someone burn for eternity because they never had the opportunity to hear the gospel message or get baptized? This is a problem that many Christians have. They say that Mormons have a different Jesus, but it might also be true that in some aspects they also believe in God in ways that are not true to his real nature. And many times it is a stumbling block for people who cannot believe in such cruelty without cause. For those who think that someone who has not truly had an opportunity to hear the gospel preached in its purity or by the Spirit, that they would burn in hell forever, I must ask you, why then did Jesus go and preach to the souls in the prison place, which is hell, some of whom were disobedient in the days of Noah? Why would he preach to them if it could accomplish nothing and they were damned regardless? In the book of Revelation, it tells us that death and hell will give up their dead so that they can stand before God to be judged. Hell is not the lake of fire. It is something else entirely. For the Bible tells us that Satan, his angels, and hell itself will be thrown into the lake of fire in the end. Remember that Christ tells us in Revelation 1.18 that he has the keys of death and hell, not Satan. This is one of the things he accomplished at the cross. Having descended to the lower parts of the earth, which is hell, he took the keys of hell. And in the resurrection, he took back the keys to death. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul speaks about how those who died without the law are not going to be judged by the law. In other words, God does not hold us to a standard that we are not even aware of. We must have knowledge of what is required of us before we are held responsible for it. This is not just merciful, but it is just. God is not a legalistically harsh judge, incapable of compassion toward individuals. He takes into account their circumstances and also what they knew. He expects us to be obedient to the things we know, not to what we do not know. Jesus knew that the thief would have gotten baptized in that moment if he could have come down off the cross to do it, but he could not, so it was counted to him as righteousness. To whom much is given, much is required. At one point, God told the Nephites that he considered the Lamanites to be more righteous than them, because the Lamanites had learned their way of life from their parents and ancestors. In other words, they didn't know better, whereas the Nephites did know better. The Nephites were intentionally sinning against the knowledge that they had, and because of this, he allowed the Nephites to be destroyed. Getting back to our topic, although our Savior's name is Yeshua, through a progression of translation in a couple of languages, we ended up with the name of Jesus. Does that mean Jesus doesn't save? Surely we know that he does. And I believe in my heart that God knows that it's just a matter of translation and a part of the confusion of the languages. I believe he also understands that it is a matter of tradition, that we have always pronounced his name as Jesus and not Yeshua. When the Lord first called me into ministry, he first gave me a testimony of the Bible as I read and studied it cover to cover. 
And then he did the same with the Book of Mormon. And while reading the Book of Mormon, I had this very same question for him. Knowing that his name was Yeshua, I asked him why his name was written as Jesus in the Book of Mormon, knowing that it was translated by the gift and power of God. The Holy Spirit assured me that the answer was forthcoming. I was about to begin a study of the Doctrine and Covenants at that time, which would end up being a very different experience from my study of the other two books. The Spirit of God witnessed powerfully to me of the truth of both the Bible and the Book of Mormon. But when I picked up the Doctrine and Covenants and prayerfully read through its pages, to my great surprise, I would read revelations where I would feel His Spirit bear witness and then not bear witness on others. Indeed, there were even times when I discerned darkness within some of the revelations, and I would not understand the reason for this for some years. But when I first went into the Doctrine and Covenants to study the revelations there, the Holy Spirit lit upon the answer to my question regarding the use of the name of Jesus in the Book of Mormon within the very first revelation known as Section 1. In that revelation, it spoke of how God had given Joseph and others commandments that the fullness of the gospel should be proclaimed by the weak and the simple unto the ends of the world and before kings and rulers. And it then stated that these commandments were given unto my servants in their weakness, after the manner of their language, that they might come to understanding. When the Holy Spirit highlighted this sentence, understanding filled my mind. I realized that the Gentiles had always known the Lord as Jesus. The English printed Bibles used the name Jesus. And because that is his name in the manner or the weakness of our language, God, not wanting to confuse us further, and so that we might be able to receive the truths of the Book of Mormon, allowed the name of the Savior to be translated as the name we knew him by. So what is there in a name? Is it true, as Shakespeare surmised, that a rose by any other name is just as sweet? And is there truly power in the name of Jesus? Life experience with insight from the scriptures has told me that it depends. What I learned the hard way is that the name of Jesus is not a magical word that carries power when used regardless of the circumstances. I was born and raised in the RLDS church. But when I was a teenager and into my mid-twenties, I ran from the truth, indulging in sins of the flesh, including drunkenness, rock music, escapism, and the pursuit of pleasures, including the typical lusting after women. And late during this time frame in my life, maybe a year or two before I gave my life to Christ, I had joined some friends in messing around with rune stones, which we were using like a Ouija board. We would ask a question and then randomly draw a stone out of a bag, and then look up the meaning of the rune etched on that stone to obtain the answer to our question. This started out merely as a joke. Nobody believed we were really getting an answer from a spirit, until we started getting answers from a spirit, and things got very strange indeed. Things happened that couldn't be explained. Coincidences occurred that defied the law of averages we began to believe that we were indeed communicating with some kind of spirit. Now this is a form of divination, which is expressly forbidden in the scriptures. Because any time you seek to communicate with spirits, you are opening a door for demonic activity in your life. One night I was staying at my friend's house. 
the place where we had been engaged in this activity, when I woke up to find that something was on my chest, trying to choke me. I struggled with it and managed to turn on a light. The demon fled into the recess of a corner. I could not see it, but I could feel it. I started telling myself that it wasn't real, that I must have imagined it. After convincing myself that it was not real, I turned off the light, and the spirit was instantly upon me again. This time, I was fully awake when it happened. Having been raised in the church as a Christian, I called upon the name of Jesus, but it seemed to have no effect. Turning the light back on again, the demon let me go, and I sat there panting, reasoning with myself, trying to use logic to deny what was happening. But after the third try, I ended up having to flee the house, and I never stayed overnight there again. The name of Jesus had no effect, and deep down in my soul, when I thought about it, I understood why. I instinctively knew it was because I did not have a relationship with Christ, and I was knowingly in rebellion against God. Therefore, there was no power in it. We can find an example of this in the Bible with the seven sons of Sceva, who tried to cast a demon out of a man using the name of Jesus whom Paul preached. The demon said to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the demon was jumped on them and beat them so badly that they fled from the house bloody, having had their very clothing torn off of them. My friends laughed at me because I was afraid to stay there. But a short time later, one of them had a bad experience in that same place, when a poster on the wall of a death metal band came to life. He also refused to stay there. And finally, the guy who lived there, who had laughed at both of us, then had something happen to him. He never told us what happened, but the next thing we knew, his parents, who were Catholics, had called in a priest to cleanse his room with prayer and holy water, etc. Almost two decades later, I desired to better understand what the scriptures mean when they say that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, especially in light of the fact that Jesus' name is actually Yeshua. We are told that we're supposed to pray in his name, and I figured the Gentiles were under grace since we didn't know what we were doing. But since I now knew that his real name was Yeshua, should I use that instead? I found myself using both names in prayer, rather awkwardly. One of them because I knew it was his proper name, but the other because it was the name I had known him by since I was a child. And because of that, I felt so much love and had such good feelings for that name. So while struggling with this, I felt the Holy Spirit comfort me. And then I felt impressed that I should look up name in the Hebrew and Greek. I felt impressed that I would find that the verses that spoke about believing and praying in his name were not really about having faith in a proper name. So I looked into it. The Greek and also the Hebrew word that is used when speaking of the name of the Lord is not defined as a word that we pronounce or write, but is actually the manifestation or revelation of someone's character i.e. as it distinguishes them from all others. It is the very essence of who they are. It is their nature, their reputation. So when it says that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, or when Jesus tells us to pray to the Father in his name, 
He didn't give us a magical password that opens doors for us, but rather we are to believe in and pray to him and have faith in and through the substance of who Christ is. It is not a proper name as a proper word that is spoken, but the very revelation of who he is, the knowledge of his character, his reputation, and his identity, and all that he stands for, that enables and empowers us to call upon him. It is not a particular word that saves us, rather he himself who saves and empowers us. It is through his merits that we can become clean and stand before God. But is his proper name not important at all? Certainly it is, for it was given to him, even as we have seen, at the very least, in a historically symbolic sense, which also gives us insight into his very nature and what he would do for us. But are we in spiritual jeopardy for using the name of Jesus? I don't believe so. Only recently, while myself and another elder prayed over a man in the name of Jesus, I felt the power of God well up in my chest as the other man prayed the confirming prayer. The power moved up into my shoulders and then down through my arms and hands and into this man, and he was instantly healed. Let me tell you, I did not do this, for as both myself and the other elder confessed in our prayers that we had no power of our own, but that Christ alone is the healer. There is nothing for us to boast of. It was Christ in me that healed this man. So if you want my opinion, whether we use the name of Jesus or Yeshua, so long as we know who we are referring to, so long as we have a relationship with him, it seems that he is willing to acknowledge our prayers regardless. Could there come a day where we will switch to using his proper name simply because we come to believe that it is more pleasing to him? Possibly. I honestly don't know how he feels about it. But at this point, whenever I have sought to know what he desires from me in regards to this matter, he has simply comforted me. So what is there to a name? Well, if we are speaking of a proper name, then Shakespeare may be correct after all. A rose by some other name is still just as sweet. But when it comes to the Greek and Hebrew definition, or the usage of this word, we absolutely, positively need to know who we are speaking to and who we are speaking about, regardless of whether we call him Jesus or Yeshua. If we do not know him or do not have faith in or acknowledge his true nature, then we are lost. We are lost if we have done, as the Bible says, and vainly imagined that God is altogether like ourselves, or that his thoughts are the same as our thoughts, or that our ways are his ways. If we imagine him according to the teachings of men or according to the institutional church, then we may be in need of correction and repentance. May we come then unto the true and living Christ, even the Christ of the Bible and the Book of Mormon, who is not just a sacrifice for sin, nor simply a fellow brother and a sibling to Lucifer, but as the Book of Mormon plainly tells us, that he is the very eternal God, even the creator of heaven and earth. He is the God of Abraham, 
Isaac, and Jacob. And it also tells us that he is the God of Israel. And according to Ether, he is both the Father and the Son. And according to Nephi, God himself would suffer and be crucified on our behalf. And as Abinadi bore witness to and was martyred for his testimony, our God, even the Heavenly Father himself, came down and took upon himself flesh and blood. And because he took upon himself flesh and blood, he would be called the Son of God. And now we begin to get a glimpse into who Christ is and what his true nature is, so that we can enter into his rest, assured that he is mighty to save, that he is able to do his work and that none can stand in his way. We can also know that he is both just and merciful. And we also know that he is love, even as the scriptures tell us. In this we can trust. In this we can have faith and learn to rely on him for all things that we stand in need of. This will conclude this week's episode. I pray that something I have shared today will be a blessing to someone out there. I am aware that many of you are struggling right now or seeking to better understand and come up to higher ground. Many of you are seeking, and many of you are questioning the traditions or the teachings or the doctrines of your church. Know that the Lord stands ready to receive all those who are willing to repent of having put their trust in men. He receives all those who are willing to forsake error in order to gain a true and lasting relationship with Him. Know that I took the same journey myself. Indeed, I am still on that journey. I have suffered many persecutions and hurt for standing in the truth. But I testify of a surety to you that gaining a personal relationship with Christ, regardless of what people say, is worth it at any cost. You are my brothers and my sisters, and you are ever in my prayers. Feel free to email me if you like at teacherinsign at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, God bless. Join us for discussion in our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash hope of Zion. Or at our YouTube channel, Teacher in Zion. That's the word teacher, space, and in Zion, spelled as one word. My books can be found at Amazon.com forward slash author forward slash Douglas Hatton. That's H-A-T, like a hat on your head. T-E-N, like the number 10. Until next time.